0: You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Krav. For more teaching and resources, visit largerstory.com.
1: I'm sorry I couldn't have been here with you for the entire week. What's it been like? It's been hard. Jarring. Hard, jarring? Give me more words. Hard, jarring. Painful. Pardon? Painful. 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 Disturbing. Sounded like a great time. <laughs> Hard, jarring, disturbing, painful?
0: Helpful.
1: Helpful. Affirming. affirming. Affirming of what? You alone. Oh. okay. You're all a mess, right? Good, I'm in good company. Pardon? Other words, a couple more words. Clarifying and confusing. What's been most clarifying? Huh. What's been most confusing? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and what I'm about,
0: right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I hear you on that. <laughs> That's funny. What else? Reuniting. Reuniting. Reuniting what? I feel I have reunited with my pastor's part. Huh. Reunited with yourself, some parts that God has placed within you. I see. You felt like an MPD to some degree, huh? Multiple personality disorder? (laughs) No, I was just disjointed. Disjointed, okay. Huh. If you were, if the seminar were, or the the conference were over now, and uh, you weren't obligated to endure me for a couple hours, um... And you were to go back and talk to one other member of your ministry team, your best friend, maybe your associate pastor or somebody else that you're involved in ministry with that you feel very close to and vulnerable with. Tell, tell me what, what you would tell that person that, that, is, that has been the major prophet of the week. Now, maybe that's the same words you've already said, but in that context, how would you, how would you talk to your best friend in the ministry? The reason I'm glad I went to the Glen for a week is? there 's hope. There's hope. Hope for... Huh. Okay. Other sentences you'd say to your best friend. I learned how to communicate. You learned how to communicate. In ways that you felt you didn't know before.
0: In the way that I was not aware I was sending a double message.
1: I see. Huh. Okay. Somebody else began back there. Yeah. Why is that good? That strikes me as a pain in the neck for me.
0: Yeah. I don't
1: know, like it. It
0: is in lots of ways, it, but uh, I think it's good once in a while
1: to look, <laughs> Not in, too often.
0: To look in front of a, uh, a clean mirror. Huh. It gives an accurate reflection and to face up to it for the good, for the good as well as the bad, because, you know, I've, I have seen
1: uh, Huh couple more. They empathize with the, with the Council East. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know what it's like, what you've been doing to these people all this time, huh? Huh. huh? What's been most surprising about the week? I'm asking all this because I'd like to have a feel for where you guys are as I talk. I don't want to get up here and just rattle on with some thoughts that might miss you entirely. I want to have some feel for where you are. This will give me just a hint of it without being a part of the week. Obviously, I've missed a great deal. But I want us to feel for the kind of things you might say. What's been most surprising? You all come with expectations to a pastor's conference. This has not been the first pastor's conference you've been to, I presume. And um, I've been to a few. I'm not a pastor, but I've spoken at a few and attended a few with friends. And um, I I think there are a certain set of expectations that people usually have when they go to a pastor's conference and I suppose every pastor's conference has some surprises and I'm sure this has been no exception so how would you respond? What has been most surprising about what you've experienced so far this week?
0: Intensity in small groups.
1: Is that new for for a lot of you? (laughs)
0: It's new to be part of the ones being questioned.
1: Yeah, and that's... I always like to be on the other side of the chair sometimes because I'm usually on this side of the pulpit. When I travel it's usually to speak the same way for you guys. And um, in the counseling office, I'm usually in the counselor's chair. I'm usually the one who's supposed to be talking to others. And to be put in another position is really a difficult thing. So you've experienced a level of intensity in community that is not common. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? Because I, I presume most of you agree that um, that the pulpit by itself cannot carry a church. The pulpit with the the church without a pulpit is not a good church. It's not a church. The pulpit strikes me as rather central, um, but it strikes me as all the pastor can offer from the pulpit is framework truth, and truth that penetrates, truth that's bloody, has to be worked out in the context of immediate relationships. And you're experiencing some more of that this week that you've been a little surprised by. Okay, what else you've been surprised by?
0: or not necessarily surprised, but refreshed by the fact that uh, those of the meeting conference don't have all the
1: answers. So they, they don't. That's what she said. You guys are pulling the act on pretty well. That's great. Yeah. Well, that's why they invited me because I have all the answers. So it's, <laughs> this is to clarify all the questions you've had. <clears throat> okay. So it's been refreshing to hear somebody up front talk about the fact that they really haven't got all the answers. And isn't it unusual, and I don't know what's happened this week, but isn't it unusual to hear somebody from the front who's in the position of authority or um, respect as the pastor, as a seminar leader, as a workshop leader, isn't it unusual to hear a person talking about a problem that is at the moment unresolved? More often you hear public speakers, if they talk about their problems at all, it's about the problem that maybe happened last week, but I've overcome it, or more commonly 20 years ago. I was in San Francisco last uh, week for last weekend for a conference, and there was a very prominent pastor there, a man who, who you would know who I have a ton of respect for and um, He spoke two years ago he and I were sharing a platform two years ago at a conference, and he said then that he had come out of, of of a deep period of depression that no one had known about except for a small group of men that he met with on a regular basis, and as he was talking about this. Um, he made it clear, as the people were feeling kind of heavy, it was a huge crowd, and he was burying his soul about a past problem. And when he got to the climax, the climax was, but I have emerged from it with more victory and joy than ever, and everybody breathed an audible sigh of relief, and people cheered, literally cheered. I followed him on the platform, and I happened to be at that point in the middle of what I think was a very significant depression from which I had not emerged and I spoke about that and when I finished there wasn't a soul that cheered. <laughs> and I wasn't invited back either. Which struck me maybe because I was a lousy speaker but maybe there's some other possibilities as well. Other surprises. Intensity of small groups. There are questions for which there are no answers. By the way, do you all agree with that? Can you as a pastor handle the fact that there are going to be questions for which you have no answers? Do you, you ever realize that um, Job Who asked a bunch of questions? When he finally met with God, God didn't answer one of them. God turned the tables and God said, "Let me ask you a few." And um, when God asked, when God turned the tables and said, "No, uh, I'll do the questioning around here," in the middle of confronting Job with his inadequacy, in the middle of confronting Job with how little he knew, God, or God somehow revealed Himself to Job, and Job, without getting answers, found God, and that was sufficient. What on earth does that mean? There's something about not having answers that's very important. I talked to a pastor who had been in the pastorate for a number of years, quit the pastorate to go into college teaching, and I said to him, why would you do that? And he said very boldly and bluntly, he said, I was fairly good behind the pulpit. I knew how to preach and I handled the word rather well. I know how to exegete. I've been to a good seminary. I know how to put together my messages but when I got up behind the pulpit uh, people would come to me with their problems and typically they were coming to me with concerns and struggles that I was in the middle of and had no answers for and I found myself giving them cliches that had never worked for me just hoping maybe they would work for them and after years of living like that he said I felt like an entire phony, a complete hypocrite and I quit and went to the college classroom where nobody expects a professor to know anything but his topic and it was a much safer place to be behind a lectern as opposed to be behind a pulpit other surprises, one or two more Hmm. That's nice to hear. Depth and quality of the worship experience. One more. God still speaks, huh? And that's something that we all would find that a surprise at times in our lives, huh? Well, I would very much like our time to count this afternoon. You've had a significant week, and I hope that the Lord will. Um, use something of what I have to say to continue the momentum that the Spirit of God has begun and I want to pray to that end will you bow with me and let's pray Father you know the junk that goes on inside of me when I stand behind a group you know the pressure I sometimes feel that I must have something to say and deliver me from that and help me to believe that you have something to say and that maybe you might be able to sneak a little of it through me I pray that the afternoon will be profitable these guys must be spent. Um, the week's about over. There's been some overload, I'm sure. But I pray that our time will be useful for your purposes. Father, when when I, when I think about the fact that you know each of our hearts in ways that we never could disclose and maybe never should disclose to each other, openness has its limits. But when, you, when I think that you know each of our hearts and you know the struggles in each of these men's hearts and mine as well, the sexual lust, the pride, the fear, the pressure, the hatred, and to think that you're still in love with us, that you're crazy about us, and you want to work with us, and you still want us to get behind a pulpit next Sunday. Father, that's grace. And I pray that we'll speak out of grace as opposed to out of self. Use this afternoon to move us another inch in that direction, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to ramble my way through some remarks for a while. This is not meant to be a formal speech or a formal presentation. I just want to relax with you in this chat. I have my brothers who wouldn't have a lectern here; just have a chair. But um, I'll take what's here, and I want to just chat with you in a rambling way for the next few minutes before I get into something a little more organized. As I thought about addressing you guys, the question that came to my mind is: What's, what's your definition of maturity? What are you What are you hoping to move people toward as you preach? What are you hoping to move yourself toward? What are you asking God to move you toward as you, as you live? What's your definition of maturity? I want to speak very bluntly. I think one of the advantages of having a small group is that maybe candor can reach somewhat new levels. None of us is very candid. I would love to write a book and have it published after I die. I think that book I maybe would say what I really mean. I asked Dan, who you heard the other night, I said, Dan, what do you think is going to be the effect when my father dies? Dad's 80 years old, and he's been my major mentor. Ton of respect for my father. And we talked about it for a bit, and the conclusion we came to is that I think I'll be more bold. I heard Chuck Swindoll say a couple years ago on the radio, publicly, nothing private about this, when he closed his father's eyes in death and took his dad to the cemetery to bury his father, for the first time in his life, he felt free. Isn't that a sentence? My kids will say that about me. i got two boys. Pop, when you take off, I'll be free. I hope not. But I think so. And my father, as much as I love and respect him, I think that there's a certain a certain something in that deeply godly man who has impacted me more for the Lord than anybody else in my life that um, I think I'll speak my mind a little more clearly. Maybe it's a mercy that I don't. Because there is obviously some wisdom and restraint. I think wisdom is defined primarily as seeing ten things and saying one. But maybe we can be a little more candid this afternoon than many of us would be in normal settings, or in other settings at least. I would suggest that it's fairly common for men in the ministry, and I'm calling myself that. I'm not a pastor, but I'm in the ministry as you are, so we're all together in one sense. I think it's fairly common for men in the ministry to have a very false definition of maturity that drives them crazy. A false definition of maturity that creates a level of pressure in their souls that leads them into a variety of deep kinds of trouble. As I try to think this through a little bit loosely, don't hold me to be a um, real articulate or deep at the moment, but just to get things going here, it occurred to me that in real broad, somewhat simplistic caricature, there maybe are two major models of maturity that we live by today. One call it the right wing, conservative, the other call it the left wing, more liberal. Call the conservative definition of maturity the together man the together man finding some basis to appear as if you have it together last weekend I was in San Francisco as I've already mentioned attending a meeting called the foundation anybody ever hear that thing called the foundation started by a very wealthy television executive in, in Texas who lost his only son about six seven years ago his only heir and he decided since he had no heir for his millions he wanted to have an heir for his spiritual wealth And because he was a committed Christian and became more committed to the death of his son, that he started a group where he invited um, several hundred, and 550 came to this particular one in San Francisco, 550 young executive-type people, ages 25 to maybe 40, some cases up to 50, who were all very, very wealthy and all at least nominally Christian and wanted to make them very, very committed. Well, we were hobnobbing with that crowd last weekend in San Francisco. We had dinner with a former publisher of Newsweek, you know, things like that. And let me tell you, if there's ever a bunch of people that look together, it's these folks. Because they have resources. They have the resources of money. They have the resources of success. They're very, very competent. They're movers and shakers. They know how to make things happen. And they're the kind of people that generally intimidate me a fair amount until I talk to them. And I had dinner with this, this fellow who was a recent believer, the fellow who was the um, former publisher. And um, he and his wife had dinner with Rachel and, and me on Friday night. And in the course of the conversation, um, as he was talking with great confidence, not in an arrogant way, but he's together. He knows how to make the world work. He's together. And as he was talking and telling stories that I was really interested in, that was really fascinating. He's a very interesting guy. I didn't feel like he was showing off, or exhibiting himself. We were just passing a very pleasant dinner together. But in the course of that evening, his wife, who had been praying for his salvation for the 15 years of their marriage... Um, and he got saved three years ago, his his wife made a comment that was fairly personal toward him, and he deflected it with humor. And I observed that, and I said to her, how do you feel at the moment? She said, what do you mean? And I said, your husband just just smiled. Feel warmed by that? No, I never do. I said, what do you mean? She said, he always deflects intimacy with humor. I turned to him and said, is that true? I'm thinking, I hope it is. You know, this guy could ruin me. But because he was a man, I think, of real integrity, he looked and he says, I'm terrified of relationship. I'm not together. How many of us perpetuate a a model of togetherness? And how many of us assume that those people that have the resources at some level really are together? How many of us as Christian leaders take the position that togetherness depends on the fact that we know our Bibles well enough and we present the image of togetherness in a way that we think we're obligated to so other people can become Pharisees like us? Is that what togetherness means? I don't think mature people are together. I think they're a mess. I think mature people are not together at all. I think maturing people go through seasons when they literally wish they were dead. The other extreme image that I think we sometimes hold in maturity those of us who reject the together man mentality and I think most of us are honest enough to know that we're not really together in ways that we pretend to be and our people think we are that the other extreme is the recovering man or can I put it in a way that will sound like I'm disagreeing with earlier comments this week I don't think I am the vulnerable man I don't think vulnerability is your final virtue at all I don't think vulnerability is a key to maturity anyway at all I think it's important I think it's important to be honest and face your life and take a hard look at yourself. I like the idea of looking inside and being changed from the inside out. That seems like a worthwhile thought to me. (laughs) But I fear that we've had a reaction in our evangelical culture against the together man into the recovering man, the man who is so into himself he never gets beyond himself. If if some of you folks probably aren't used to looking at your life, and others of you are, those of you who are used to looking at your life, if you're just beginning it, then I guarantee that you'll experience eventually what others who are more experienced in that will will, will, will testify to. You get sick of it. All right, you've been real vulnerable and intense this week, so big deal. Do it again next week. What will happen? We'll do it again the week after. And maybe maturity will come as you get more and more vulnerable, and as you get into more and more depths of things, understand yourself more and more. Maybe that's the key to maturity. I don't believe it is. I was taking a shower a while ago. I've had some since, but I was taking a shower a while ago. Dan and I read a seminar together. It was maybe two years ago. And I forget what it was, but um, I was going through something that I was struggling with and didn't know what was going on. And in the middle of that shower, I began to think, why, why am I so, whatever it was, angry or lustful or whatever the problem was? Why can't I get over this? Why am I reacting this way? Something's wrong with me, and I'm going to go teach people how to live for the Lord, and I'm this kind of a mess. And I began thinking through all the stuff that I teach. And I got so frustrated with it all that I, I literally took the bar of soap that was in my hand and just flung it against the side of the shower stall. made a racket and... Dan came running into the shower and pulled back the curtain. You okay? You know, hey, I'm fine. Don't bug me, you know. Community isn't always what you desire.
0: <laughs>
1: and something inside of me just felt, um, came to a realization maybe that there's got to be more to maturity than understanding yourself. It's the biggest surprise I've had in my 48 years. That's how old I am. been a Christian since I was 8 years old. And I've been a committed Christian in some significant ways, I think, for a lengthy time. I think the biggest surprise I've had in my Christian life is I'm not better by now. I don't feel I'm any less of a mess than I was 20 years ago. There are certain problems that I had 20 years ago I don't have now. There's been evidence of growth as we normally define growth. There's been evidence of growth in my life. Struggles I had when I was 20, I don't have now at 48. Struggles I had when I was 30 or 40, I don't have now at 48. And I presume certain struggles I have now at 48, I won't have when I'm 60. But when one struggle gets solved, another one comes along. And if I define maturity as somehow understanding myself in the middle of my problems in a way that will help me to overcome those problems, then I think I've got a wrong definition of maturity. And I think if I have a recovering mentality about maturity, that ultimately I'm going to increase not in maturity, but rather in narcissism. Does that make sense to you? I think there's a third model that I want to talk about mostly today, a model of maturity that I want to give you just a handle, and there's no one handle that will say all that needs to be said, but this might be just a handle to think think about. I don't think maturity should be thought of in terms of the the, the together man, finding all the biblical principles to put your life together, and when you have problems with your wife, learn the biblical principles of marriage, and you can go out and do your biblical principles and make your wife a happy biblical wife and you have a good biblical marriage. It doesn't work that way. Raising your kids biblically doesn't provide you any guarantees. You all know that. Or you should know that. The together man is no model of maturity that we that, that belongs to the Christian community. The recovering man is a very self-centered man, typically. I want to suggest a third model. Let me call it the transcendent man. The transcendent man. Let me read you a passage I've thought about a lot over the years. Talked about it a lot. In Jeremiah 20, I want to give you an example of what I mean by the transcendent man. Familiar passage to many of us. Jeremiah, who began the ministry under duress. God called him and he said he didn't have the qualifications. He was a kid. And God had no sympathy and said, get going. Gave him a couple of visions and said, now take off. And he had a lot of um, expectations, I presume, for the ministry, as all of us have. And the expectations were pretty well crushed. In the early part of his ministry, he told people to seek the living water that comes from God. And he quoted God's concern for those who are seeking broken cisterns and digging broken cisterns that could hold no water. And then a little while later in Jeremiah 15, he comes to God and says, You're to me like a, bro- like a broken cistern, like a brook that's dried up. This is the process of maturity. The process of maturity includes profound disillusionment. Until we're stunned into silence by something, we will not hear the voice of God. Someone has said Ecclesiastes is the first book you ought to read in the Bible because Ecclesiastes sets the stage for the other 65 books. Ecclesiastes stuns us into silence, and then makes us vulnerable to hearing whatever else God is saying. Well, Jeremiah, as he lived his life honestly, came to the conclusion, or came at least to the fear of the internal sense that God to him was like a dried up brook and there was no water left. By the way, that's the one time in the book of Jeremiah that God tells Jeremiah to repent. Isn't that interesting? I mean, Jeremiah did a lot of things. That's the one time God says to Jeremiah, I want you to repent. Because I'm not a dried up brook. I'm, I'm, I'm good. And I am springs of living water. I know that requires faith because your experience argues against it most days of your life. But I ask you to live by faith. I command you to live by faith. Well, Jeremiah continued the ministry, and uh, things got worse. And it's interesting to notice how God comforted Jeremiah when things were getting tough. Remember the passage in Jeremiah 12 when Jeremiah was complaining about how hard things were, and, and God's response to him was, um, it's been hard running against men. Wait, like, put you in a race against horses? What kind, of, what kind of paraclete is that? What kind of comfort is that? Can you imagine a counselor doing that? Does God have any comprehension of counseling skills at all? Until you're offended by God, you've not met him. Jeremiah 20. Jeremiah now has had um, some battles against some horses. He's running some races that he's lost rather badly, and he's been beaten and put in the stocks. And he says in Jeremiah 20 and verse 7, Lord, you deceived me. And the word, by the way, for deceived is a sexual term. You seduced me. You offered me promises that didn't come true. You seduced me and I was, I was seduced. You overpowered me and prevailed. I'm ridiculed all day long. Whenever everyone mocks me, whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. The word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say, and here's what I think is the evidence of transcendence in Jeremiah's life. But if I say, I really want to quit. But if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name. When a deep, urgent passion comes into my soul that says, I've had it. And I really want out. Then I become aware, when I get that honest about what's happening in my soul, I become aware of a transcendent reality within me. His word is in my heart like a fire. A fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I want to read you a letter that I was given yesterday by a pastor, a good friend of mine. I read it this morning for the first time and uh, I called him this morning and said, may I read it this afternoon to a bunch of pastors from all over and he gave me permission. I am sitting at my computer, dear Larry, I'm sitting at my computer exhausted and angry. Not at you. By the way, I read this as an illustration of what I believe is a man who's maturing. See if you agree this is a man who's maturing. If I read the rest of the verses in Jeremiah 20, you have Jeremiah getting all excited. Remember the passage? You know, the Lord's with me like a strong champion, and I cannot be vanquished. And praise God, and he sings a hallelujah chorus. The next verse is, cursed be the day I was born. I mean, is that maturity or manic depression? he need either Spirit of God or lithium? Well, here's a man that I believe is moving toward transcendence, a man I have profound respect for. I'm sitting at my computer, exhausted and angry. This is Tuesday night this week. Last week, we started a new feature in our staff meetings, the senior pastor of a large church. Each time we meet, one of the guys has 15 minutes to talk about what the Lord is currently doing in his life. Not a devotional, just some inside stuff. Last Thursday, one of my staff guys, with whom I have discussed some of my struggles with life that doesn't work, in quotes, glibly shared some recent thoughts about God and life. He started by saying he recently saw a bumper sticker that said, Life sucks. But he disagreed. His life theme was, Life is good. It nauseated me. His father was an alcoholic. His wife had cancer, died three years ago in her 40s. He and his young son have been in counseling because of their conflicts. His married daughter doesn't care for the woman he recently married, wouldn't speak to her for months while they were dating. Adjustment to married life is not going well. She has three children at home and two older boys who think this guy is a wimp and he knows it. She won't talk with him in the morning and it ticks him off. He's in his late 40s and wants to be a senior pastor, but has always been an associate. Last year, when he put out resumes for senior pastor positions, no one called. I felt like he was stabbing me with the life is good dagger. His words were hollow, unconvincing, pathetic. Life is good, yeah, right. So I asked him if he would have said, life is good, to the 70-year-old man I sat with last Friday night whose wife had an aneurysm and stroke and died within an hour. But he tell one of our other staff guys whose nine-year-old son is having open-heart surgery next week that life is good? Tell the woman I met with last Thursday night who confided that she was sexually abused by her father that life is good. Tell the man I spoke with this afternoon on the phone whose wife left after 30 years that life is good. Go ahead, tell me life is good as I tell you of our infertility and being married to a wife who is sick more than she is well as she lays in bed with ice packs on both sides of her head and tells me to shoot her. Life is good? He didn't convince me. Why am I telling you? As I'm thinking back to what you said last Wednesday in a class that he attends. And to make sense of this letter, let me tell you what I said. I told about a situation last week when I was telling some friend about um, really feeling beside myself with, with pressures and saying that I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. I told my friend this. My friend remembered in the middle of my saying that a phone call he had forgotten to make. And boy, that ticked me off. he walked out to make the phone call, came back and said, what were you saying? I'm thinking back to what you said last Wednesday. Not exactly this, but something like it. You told someone you felt like you wanted to die, and he recalled a phone call he forgot to make. Ever since you said that, I've been thinking about it. You not only told that guy, you told the whole class. I wonder why. That's discerning. As I read that, I felt, ooh, I'm on the other side of the chair now. What did I do when I heard it? The first thing I did was to identify, I want to die too. In fact, I've prayed for it to happen while I'm playing racquetball. You know, I'm really afraid to say some of that sort of stuff because I, I, really, I really have a hard time believing anybody else feels like that sometimes. After identifying, I wondered, does he feel like that often? Just a new feeling? Is it more intense than usual? What would he like from the person who hears that? Don't you dare take care of me. I don't want that. Will anyone from the class ask him about it? Nobody did. Do people who want to die know more about life than those who don't? I think yes. Does a person who feels like he wants to die think life is good? I'm in the middle of this stewardship campaign of the church, and life is not good. (laughs) Anybody relate? I had two days off in September. I'm in the fight of my life to get through preaching on money three times each weekend during October. I'm getting nasty letters. People are whining about all the money we're spending on the banquet in October or whatever. I can't leave my office at church to go to the bathroom without someone asking me a question in the hallway about the stewardship campaign. I have deadlines nearly every day. Everyone on my weekly schedule wants something from me. There are sick and hurting people in the church I want to visit, but I have no time to see them. As you know, when I come to class, everywhere I look I see church people I carefully try to avoid, though if I see them I am appropriately cordial. Why take your time with all this? I'm not sure. I love that line. Best line in the whole letter. No plan. Folks, you got one of two choices in your life. Live to find a plan to follow or live to find a person to trust. You can't have both. Pursuing a plan will get in the way of your finding a person every one of us is plan builders. I love a plan. I love it when a plan comes together. He didn't have a plan for this letter. Why take your time with all this? I'm not sure. I love that line. I'd like to think I simply wanted to say, I heard what you said, and it didn't make me think of a phone call I forgot to make. But I probably want to do something for you that the guy you mentioned didn't do. Fix it, he's saying to himself, quotes his own name, make Larry feel better. But I'm not going to try because it would sound too much like life is good, and I don't think it is. I do believe this. Life isn't good, but God is. You're helping me to believe this more deeply than ever before in my life. Thanks. And he signs his name. What's your definition of maturity? That's a man on his way to maturity. That's a man who I can't wait to hear preach his next sermon. That's a man who, when he gets up to preach, is going to see me in the audience and not be embarrassed not feel like I wrote Larry and he knows this my reaction is that qualifies you to preach a real good message because now when you go to the text you've got to find God or you won't make it you won't make it you're energized now to find God I'm still in my introductory ramble so permit a little more I think one of the ways to tell whether your definition of maturity is the together man or the recovering man is to ask, what brings you to tears? I think the transcendent man, the man who is longing for a sense of transcendence, the man who is saying with all of his heart, I want to believe in something bigger than me that consumes me. That's transcendence. There's something bigger than me, and it consumes me. There's something bigger than my immediate life. There's something bigger than my child on drugs. There's something bitter, bigger than my wife who hates sex. There's something bigger than my husband who is homosexual. There's something bigger than my financial plight. There's something bigger than... There's something bigger that consumes me that is more the point than whatever it is I'm going through. I think transcendence is a way of coming to grips and saying it meaningfully with the idea that I'm not the point. He is. He is. And I think that maybe one measure and I'm just wandering through this now I'm not teaching so much as just wondering out loud but I wonder if maybe one measure of transcendence is what brings you to tears. And I have three things that occur to me might bring a transcendent man a man who's living to pursue transcendence a man who wants more than just to be together in this world a man who wants more than to recover from his struggles so he can get a better self-image and be a more powerful person and become a together man. Or maybe stay a struggler because that's in vogue these days. One thing I hope you don't get from this conference is to go home as a noble struggler. You know, I've learned that my motivation isn't really very good a lot of the times. Well, don't tell everybody. They already know it. (laughs) Don't go home and share all your insights with your wife. She'll be annoyed. Maybe one measure of transcendence is whether whether or not you cry over certain things. Transcendent people are passionate people. And they're passionate in three ways at least. They're angry, they're desperate, and they're sad. I'm just rambling here. Don't hold me accountable for this. Transcendent people, I want to suggest to you, are angry. They're passionately angry people. Like God. Jesus wept. The word weep wept in John 11:35. So i memorize that when you were a kid at camp and you had to recite a verse to get something as the one verse you could recite. I did that a lot. Shortest verse in the Bible. The word weep, "the weep there, the, the word that's translated weep, has more than just tears. There's an anger to it. As he's standing at Lazarus' grave, there's an anger about him. This wasn't the plan. To have brothers die and leave sisters alone. That wasn't the plan. I'm blocking in the name of that... Um, Modernistic painter who just, uh, Salvador Dali. Dali, I'm told the story, read it somewhere, put it a, painted a picture on Macy's window in New York City and did it behind all sorts of coverings so nobody could see it. And the day of the unveiling came when crowds came to watch the masterpiece of this renowned artist. And Dali was there to exhibit his marvelous painting on the window of Macy's in downtown New York. And as the curtain was pulled back and Dolly saw the painting, he recognized immediately that somehow, when he finished his painting a day or two ago, somebody had gotten to that painting and done a little bit of changing on it. Taken his masterpiece and disfigured it, not in some major way, just a couple little improvements. Some amateur artist wanted to improve on things. And what Dolly did this is supposed to be a true story, I read it anyhow. What Dolly did when he saw the painting disfigured, he hurled himself through the window and broke it. He was angry at the disfigured painting. How does God feel at the tomb of Lazarus? Are you passionate with anger? Transcendent people are mad a lot. There's a great difficulty with this. <laughs> anger g- gets us in trouble, right? I mean, a lot of us are angry, but it doesn't seem like it's very mature. I remember the time I was preaching at a Bible conference, Word of Life in New York, if you know Jack Wharton's ministry, and I was preaching there for a week, and I was preaching on peace and grace and all sorts of neat things and I was out jogging in the afternoon and I came down a sidewalk and there were two teenage kids that were the snottiest teenage kids I ever saw in my life. Everything I hate about the, possible, the potential of teenage years was embodied in these two teenagers. And as I was jogging down the sidewalk these two kids saw me coming and it was clear the sidewalk was wide enough for just two so one of us was going to have to get off the sidewalk one of those two kids or me. And I see the two kids kind of talking to each other like you yeah, yeah, yeah it was clear what they were saying. I mean, I'm not delusional, but I knew what they were saying. They were saying, let's make him get off. What would you do? (laughs) I'm not proud of it, but I'll tell you what I did. When we got to the point where somebody had to move, these kids just kind of did this. And I lowered my shoulder and ran into one kid and I sent him sprawling. And I jogged on and I felt like a million bucks. (laughs) Now, am I commending that? No, but you're all enjoying it. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, like somebody on my board I wouldn't mind knocking off the sidewalk. And, and I'm suggesting that maybe the cure for bad anger, and I think that was bad anger. I don't think that's godly anger on my part. I tell the story to be laughed, but I'm not proud of that. I'm not, I mean that when I say I'm not proud of it. That wasn't a good thing to do. But the cure for bad anger that most of us found is no feeling. We kill that part of our soul we're afraid of. And we lose a passion to be angry about things that ought to make us angry. Because we don't deal with things well when we're angry, we then decide we're not going to be angry. What makes you cry? I've cried three times in the past two weeks. Let me tell you three times I've cried. First time, it was a passion of anger. I'd like to believe that I'm at the starting line maybe a foot or two beyond it along a long long road to a sense of transcendence but that's where I want to go I don't want to go toward togetherness I've given up on that because I've written a bunch of books on how to get together they don't work I don't want to just be a recovering man because I think that's just selfish and I won't have any power if I become like that I want to become a transcendent man and and I want to be an angry man in a right kind of a way and the tears that I cried the first time I cried in the last two weeks or three weeks I guess it was driving home from work I was um, 6 o'clock at night and I saw a uh, side road where I was driving along, and the Domino's pizza truck was coming up on the side road. And I noticed it It because it's you know it's colorful and has a big sign on it. And my mind went to the fact I haven't had pizza for a while, and I thought I want to get a pizza. So I just kind of looked at the truck because I wanted to get a pizza. I saw the driver of the truck, and he was an old man. He must have been 70 years old. I fell apart and cried. That isn't how it's supposed to be. My father's 80. I can't visualize him at 70 driving a Domino's pizza truck. Now, the fact of the matter is the guy's probably a physician or a CEO or maybe a pastor who got smart and is out just delivering pizzas having the time of his life. That's real possible. You know, no pressures. Things are great. You know, if the truth were known, that's probably the case. But You all know who Steve Brown is? Pastor from Key Biscayne who re- resigned as pastor about two years ago. Did you say at a pastor's conference about a-, a month after he resigned from the church? He was pastor there for 20 years. I've been to him. I've been to his church. I've preached there. I know Steve well. And he told me the story, and this has been publicized. Some of you have heard about it. He was speaking at a pastor's conference, at a big Presbyterian pastor's conference, where he's a, he's a Presbyterian of the PCA. And he got up to speak, and he said um, to a thousand pastors, a big crowd, and he said, um, most of you know, or perhaps some of you don't, that as of a month ago, I am no longer a pastor. And then he went, na-na-na-na-na-na. And he was raked over the coals for his irreverence, and he thought thought it was funny. I'm not defending or attacking that. I'm just saying that that's what the man said, because, because there's something about being a pastor, at least Steve told me, that you see a lot of old men driving domino trucks. You see a lot of things that just shouldn't be. You, you see a lot of men that leave their wives. Did you ever just lose your temper It's sin? Did you ever just get mad about it? I lost my temper real bad once in a counseling office. A guy and a wife came in, late 40s, never saw them before. They were just names on my calendar. They sat down the woman was just broken. She was sad. She was sobbing. She was disheveled. The man sat there hard as nails. And I said, what's the story? Why can I be of hell? And the woman said through tears, he's going to divorce me after 28 years of marriage. I turned to him, and I didn't know anything about this in my first exposure to the couple, and I said, Is that the case? He said, Yeah. And um, he wasn't talkative, and I tried to get something going, see if I could be of any help, and it was clear, within about 20 minutes, became clear this man had come to the counseling office for one reason only. His lawyer told him, Make sure on your record you can document you've paid bucks to see a psychologist, so maybe the, law, the, the judge will go easier on your alimony payments. His only reason for seeing me was to use me to lower his payments. And when that became clear, I lost my temper. And I stood up and I said, you get out of my office now. And I followed him down the hallway, screaming, top of my lungs, saying to him, I pray God's severest judgment on your unholy head. And I followed him out of the parking lot, shouting at him. Now, my next client sitting in the waiting room was a little bit... (laughs) wanted to be cried over things that are just so bad. The symbol of an old man driving a pizza truck. Boy, that got to me. Dan and I were in Philadelphia two weeks ago. And another old man carried our bags to our room for us. And I felt the same thing then. That's one time I cried in the last couple of weeks. Second time I cried it was about four nights ago. I couldn't sleep. And um, don't you all have seasons i mean sometimes I'm, I'm i'm a little tired this afternoon but i'm feeling fine you know i'm not depressed i'm not in despair i'm not disturbed I mean, i've been doing other things and um i'll play golf tomorrow and you know rachel and i are getting along real well um our two kids are doing fine at the moment and just got a royalty check from zondervan you know bank accounts a little bigger now so i'm doing fine i'm a happy guy basically but i sure wasn't four nights ago don't you all have seasons aren't you glad they're only seasons well, my season last, a couple of nights ago, four nights ago, couldn't sleep, and I just was overwhelmed with how much I had to do. You've all been there. You're all there. This pastor, whose letter I read was there. I'm going to be doing a men's conference for Jim Callum in uh, Charlotte in just about a month. I've got to put together a whole notebook for that by Sunday. And I don't have it ready. I haven't begun it yet. I've got to get that done. I leave for Boston on Sunday, do a seminar there. I go from Boston to, to Dallas to do the Dallas Pastors Conference. I'm speaking about eight times to the Dallas Pastors Conference in two weeks, and they've given me my topics, and I haven't even thought about them yet. They've asked me for outlines. I don't even have a thought, let alone an outline. I have a title because they gave it to me, but I'll just I'll do something and. And and all this was just coming down in my head and thinking about some other things and some tensions in our office and and on and on and on and on and on. And I feel the way you feel. I'm not talking language that you don't understand at all. And I just felt overwhelmed with things. And I remember sitting up beside my bed, I couldn't sleep, and I I began to cry and I say, I can't get it done. I can't do what life expects of me. And I cried tears of desperation. If I didn't believe that the path toward transcendence included desperation, I really don't think I'd survive. I think immoral temptations might win in me as they've won in so many others. But I have hope. As I read the scriptures, as I read Jeremiah and lots of other passages we're going to look at before our day is through here, When I finish my rambling introduction and finally get to my point, I believe that the path to transcendence includes being shattered by anger, passionate about angry things, and shattered by feelings of desperation as we try to pull off what cannot be pulled off, namely, living effectively. I just can't do it. I don't always make the right judgments. talked to my parents this morning on the phone. And they said, well, how you doing? And I said, I'm kind of busy. And Dad said, you know, I'm kind of worried about you. And I said, well, get in line. You're, you're doing too much. Shouldn't you cut down? And internally, it's like, you tell me how. Maybe I'll drive a Domino's pizza truck. That sounds good. I get desperate sometimes. And like the pastor who wanted to die in the racquetball court... I'd like to die sometimes. Not a bad company, Elijah. What did Paul mean when he said to be with Christ is far better? I don't think he was saying that lightly. Like, well, it'd be good to go to heaven, but hey, this is pretty neat. I think he was saying I can think of only one reason to stick around here. I think I could be useful for my Lord. Other than that, man, I'll go home. I want to go home. Maybe it's midlife crisis. Maybe it's the right time for me. I don't know. I don't like the term, but maybe it's accurate. But as I start thinking along those lines, I find myself saying, that's not something I can share with my wife. Because I've talked to a lot of wives of men in my age bracket, and many, many wives tell me that their husbands become preoccupied with death. I hear that a lot. I know two women who have been fairly recently widowed. One is my sister-in-law. Bill died in an airplane crash a while ago. Another woman that I know well, got a letter from her today. Before I came down from the Denver this morning, I read her letter. It was a story of her reaction to her husband's heart attack about two years ago. And both of these widows—one, my sister-in-law—have told me. The other widow, with greater depth in terms of saying that this happened more often, at least, and Phoebe, my sister-in-law, said that um, their husbands. my, My brother died at 51. The other man died at 57. Their husbands talked a lot about death. It really bothered them a lot. Rachel doesn't like to hear it when I say things like, maybe as I drive along, it'd be nice if I died. She's not real crazy about hearing that. She's got some sensitivities, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) I remember a very, very prominent Christian leader sitting in my office 10 years ago, and he said, Every day I pray for a heart attack. Is that part of the path? If you face life the way it really is, I think it's an essential part of the path, not an admirable part of the path, not something to be pursued, not something like, gee, I don't really want to die. What's wrong with me? I'm not suggesting that. But I'm suggesting if you live life honestly, you're going to say, this really isn't home. I'd rather be somewhere else. I don't like it here all that much. Together people think that heaven will be one little notch up. Hey, this is great, and that will be better. Boy, that's not the case. We're out of the garden. I cried four days ago about that. The third passion that I think is present in a transcendent man anger, desperation, and lastly, sadness. Just yesterday, I read a chapter that Dad is writing for a book that he and I are working on together. It's called A Whiff of Heaven. In this room about two years ago, we had 300 people, and Dad was standing up there at what we call our advanced seminar. At the end of a long week of counseling training, my father got up and he said, um, He was 78 at that time, two years ago, and he said, When you get to be my age, you begin to get a whiff of heaven before you can see it. You begin to hear the sounds of music and the land that's coming. And the phrase just grabbed the audience, it grabbed my guts. We're writing a book called A Whiff of Heaven. The delightful unpredictability of God. Dad is telling stories from his life. He was five years old. His father died. His father's dying words to his crying wife were, Hush, God is in it. And then he died. Made an impact on my dad. My dad's a very committed, godly man. My dad's brother, who heard the same words, died six years ago, never making a profession of faith in Christ. An agnostic till his deathbed. And going into eternity with no profession of faith. Is God good? The idea is challenged by life. It's true. But only transcendent people believe it. Together people don't really believe it. They spout it, but they don't believe it. Recovering people kind of use it at their convenience to help them on their recovery, but they don't believe it. But transcendent people who know what it is to be angry... At old men driving pizza trucks, not at them, but at the fact that these things happen. Who know what it is to feel desperate because life just, at times, comes unglued. It just doesn't work. You don't know how to restore intimacy with your wife. You don't know how to deal with your kids. You don't know what to do. You don't know whether to... Um, my, my kids are older now, they're 21 and 24. And, and I don't know sometimes whether I should call them at this particular point. Well, they feel like I'm bugging them or will they feel affirmed by it? And I don't know. And it's like, somebody tell me. Well, there's a whole bunch of experts that will tell you, but they all disagree, so what's the good? (laughs) We've got to learn something about New Covenant theology, that somehow the Lord moves in us to want to do His good pleasure. We don't live by principles. We live by the Spirit of God prompting somehow. That means something. But Dad sent me a chapter of the book that we're writing together. He's writing vignettes from his story. God is in it and some other stories. And I'm writing my reaction to it. It's a book on mentoring, really. As I read it yesterday, one of his chapters, Dad was, was, um, had in the book a letter he's written to Bill. who's was in heaven. And he had one line there, and I can't recall it exactly, but the gist of it was, um, Bill will never get this letter. I know the address, but I don't know who will deliver it. And I fell apart and cried. And I wonder why I cried then. An overwhelming sense of longing, sadness. What's the right word? Lewis talks about an inconsolable longing in our souls for something beyond. And I became aware of Lewis's phrase that we live in the shadows. The reality is not what we see. We see only the shadows. Plane crashes are shadows. Reality is later. Bill is more alive right now than any of us. I really believe that. And I cried over that because I'm a very sad man. Because I long for what is not yet. Transcendence. Now, I'm within two minutes of getting into my remarks. So be patient with me. What I guess I'm wanting to... I don't like the word challenge. It's overused. But if I can use it without sounding too hackneyed. What I guess I'm wanting to challenge you with today is this. What is your view of maturity, and are you with integrity pursuing what you define as a biblical view, and it's up to you to define it for yourself. I think most would agree it's not togetherness the way we often define it, it's not recovery as we often define it. Maybe your words would be different than mine, but there's something about being aware of a larger reality than me. Paul says that I may know Him. I devote all my energies to knowing Christ. There's nothing else that really matters. I want to know Him rather than use Him to get my life together. I want to know Him and let the chips fall where they may as I pursue knowing Him. The biggest problem in my mind in the Christian counseling world today is we re- we assume that God is to be used to solve our problems. That's a mistake. We must rather use our problems as reason to find God. That's a radically different conception. Radically different. Paul wants to know Christ. Nothing else matters to him. He's obsessed. That's maturity. Now, my challenge to you is this, as you think through your own views of maturity and do your best to live consistently with your own views of maturity, are you willing to drag your people in the same direction as you? I told my class yesterday... Hundred students there listening to me talk for four hours, and I said to them, "If you really buy into what I'm saying, I'm going to screw you all up, because some of you are fairly together. I don't think anybody's together. I think we're a mess. But when we're a mess in the presence of God, something about our brokenness and our weakness gets transformed." Something becomes alive within us that becomes enticing to others on behalf of the Savior, not impressive to anybody, but enticing. Something about us becomes very weak and we feel like we have nothing to say and we lose confidence in ourselves, and in the middle of that, somehow powerful things happen and we don't know how to explain them. I've been counseling now for 20-some years, and a lot of people would say I've helped them. and he would say that I haven't, but a lot of people would say that I've helped them. But the ones that would say that I've helped them, the ones that I've talked to at least, when they said, Larry, you've been used of God, our marriage is better, I feel so much better, things are different in my life, and I really feel like I know the Lord better, and things are going on in ways that I'm really grateful for, when I say to them, well, how did I help? They never have a clue, which always frustrates me. Dan tells a story, and it's a true one, of a woman that was really a mess, and he was working with her, and she got she was very different one session she came in after a very tough session she came in the next week and she was doing a whole lot better and she was was visibly improved and dan said you seem to be a lot better she said oh i'm a new person i'm more confident in the lord now and just really good things more aware of his presence and more aware of his love and and more yeah life is bad but god is good and i'm willing to live this life for his purposes and there was a real wonderful change and dan kind of said well what did i what did i do to be of help you know and She said, oh, nothing that I can think of, but she said, "Um, after last session I left your office and I got in the car and I put on the radio and Chuck Swindoll was on. And he said, God loves you. And she said, for whatever reason, that just pierced my heart and I just began to rejoice I've been better ever since. And Dan said, I told you that six months ago, but not like Chuck. Are we willing to lead people into spheres of confusion where we're not sure what it is we're doing all the time? Are we willing to move with people in directions that when they change, we're not going to know why exactly? Are we willing to live without systems? Are we willing to live with some anchor points, obviously, some doctrinal anchor points? I believe the Bible's inerrant. I believe Christ is God. I believe salvation's by the blood. I believe heaven's coming up. After that, I'm about out of things. I've got some other positions, but put a, put a gun to my head and I'll be flexible.
0: <laughs>
1: Are we willing to invite people to move along the path of brokenness? The path of being disillusioned? The path of being silenced? You can't lead people a path you're not walking on yourself. What I want to do, we'll take a break in just a moment, let you stretch a bit, take a five-minute break. What I want to spend the rest of the afternoon together doing and then on into tonight is I want to tell you about a journey that's begun for me after my brother's death. That's a different dimension for me than it ever was in my first 46 years. And it strikes me as important, at least for me. And as I share it with you, maybe it will be important for you as I tell you my understanding of what it means to pursue transcendence. Let's break for about five minutes and we'll come back.
0: Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.